This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we love to talk about everything here on this show, from business to history, from sports to the arts, and your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We'll take a listen, we'll put it together, produce it, and you'll be hearing your stories, your own stories, on the air. They're some of our favorites. The American people can write and talk, and my goodness, what stories you've already given us. What's coming up next is an intersection of two of our favorite subjects, innovation and music. And you're about to hear the story of the multi-track recording. It spawned an epic rivalry between the Beach Boys and the Beatles. Change music as we know it. Here's Greg Hengler with the rest of the story. I, I love the colorful clothes you wear And the way the sunlight plays upon her hair In the 60s, multi-track recording began to redefine what music could be and turn the studio into a sonic laboratory. I'm picking up vibrations. Here's Ringo Starr. It was like a strange place full of like crazy scientists, electricians, madmen. Here's music producer Don Was. Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. 90 hours working on one song. Everyone thought that was insanity. Here's music historian Chuck Granada and the founder of the band Boston, Tom Scholes. I woke up this morning and the sun was gone. Turned on some music to start my day. In 1976, a band named Boston had a hit single called More Than a Feeling. What no one knew was that Boston really wasn't a band at all. Boston was the result of me tinkering in a basement with my multi-track recording studio. It was a, a really personal endeavor. I work in my own space, my own time, put a rhythm guitar part on, and then another one, and then a bass track, keyboards. Then I uh, called Brad Delp to see if he wanted to sing the vocals, which thankfully he did. So I basically threw a band together to be able to play the songs live. Not only didn't the record company uh, not only were they not aware that I was making a record in my basement, but they never became aware that the record that they were selling millions of copies of was made in a basement. Multitracking allowed you to put music together and change it. And the reason it was cool is because this gave you a, basically a whole new medium. At one point, someone explained to me, older than I was, that this whole process of recording on uh, multi-track recorders was invented by this guy, Les Paul. And I said, well, what a coincidence. There's a guitar that, that's named a Les Paul. And he says, yeah, there's a good reason for that. Les Paul not only designed some guitars that made new and incredible sounds, but had this vision for recording studios. He invented multi-track recording. I mean, that, that, that changed everything. Here 
Here's Eric Clapton. The records I heard by Les Paul and Mary Ford in the 50s, I was even aware then that without any knowledge of, um, of recording techniques that they were doing something revolutionary. Uh, we turn the tape machines on. They're just a standard, regular uh, Ampex tape machine. Mm -hmm. As I recall, there are uh, about a dozen or 20 voices come in there. Now, where, who's the voices? That's Mary. You mean they're all Mary's voices? Mm -hmm. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Now yeah. I'll add a tenor part to that. All right. Wait a minute. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven, how high the moon. Well, how long can this go on without getting awful confused in your head? <laughs> it's being, pretty confused. Being cued by your husband. <laughs> well, uh, would you like to hear the third part? Yes. Somewhere there's music, how faint the tune. Somewhere there's heaven. Here's Jeff Beck. Les Paul, I mean, he made sounds no one had ever heard before. I remember my mum saying, you shouldn't listen to this music, it's fake. She said, it's one guy tricking us. So I said, that's it, that's, me. that's the music for me. <laughs> because it was enabled me to be rebellious, you know, as well. And I enjoyed the sound. I don't think you can beat that. I mean, the way that those records sound is it's still exciting. Before Magnetic Tape, an artist would come into the studio and they would be recorded live. What they would do is literally etch the grooves into the disc as the session was being recorded. You had to start from the beginning and go to the end. If you made any mistakes, too bad, or you had to start over. Magnetic Tape, it just changed music completely. It gave you the possibility to record in fidelity that was better than anyone had ever even come close to, so you could make a more accurate document. At the same time, it lets you manipulate sound so it didn't sound lifelike at all because now you could edit, you could overdub, you could cut and splice. Once the technology came out, it very quickly became the standard format. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable story, this tale of innovation and music and competition. Competition is a vital part of this story. The story of the multi-track recording continues here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of the multi-track music revolution. And by the way, I'm a huge music fan, and there's some stuff. Well, I'm just writing down notes to myself, and I'm going to be going back to listen to some of my favorite records now and listen a whole lot differently. Let's return to this story and to Greg Hengler. Okay, wouldn't it be nice take five? Recalling his 1960s game of one-upmanship with the Beach Boys' so-called rivals, the Beatles, Brian Wilson said, Rubber's soul inspired pet sounds, which inspired Sgt. Pepper's. Here's music producer Don Was and music historian Chuck Granato. I think the kind of friendly competition between the Beatles and the Beach Boys really advanced the cause of popular music. Brian Wilson heard Rubber Soul and understood that there was a whole other place where you could take rock and roll. That that, that was an elevated musical consciousness in play. Brian was listening to what the Beatles were doing in the studio and he was completely knocked out. Hearing that made him realize that he had to up the ante on his next album, which was Pet Sounds. No, it's gonna make it that much better when we can say goodnight and stay together. He told me that he and Carl used to pray before each session that they would make a record that would be warmer and more inspirational than Rubber Soul. None of those big pickups, bah, 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 just, uh, just like, uh, Brian pre-imagined everything that he did. He heard all of the vocal parts, all of the instrumental parts, even before anyone set foot in the studio. Brian was the mastermind. I'd like to start it out now, this time, with the uh, organ and the Fender bass. And then uh, the bongos will come in the second half like everything else. All right, here we go. Ironically, the only song from the Pet Sound Sessions that reached number one was recorded after the album was released. And it was the result of an unprecedented number of hours in the studio. Here's Glenn Campbell. Time was nothing to Brian Wilson. I remember we all got to sit there for about three and a half hours when he was running his finger up that thing going. I'm picking up Just having the time to experiment in the studio was a radical change. When he made good vibrations, Brian reportedly spent 90 hours recording it. Everyone thought that was insanity, you know, like he's gone mad. He spent 90 hours working on one song. You know, I mean, today that's nothing. Here's Beach Boys drummer Hal Blaine and bassist Carol Kay. The session that we did on good vibrations was not one session. It was many, many, many sessions. Take after take after take. My fingers were almost bleeding, you know. It's like, come on, Brian, fade us out, fade us out. I don't know where, but you sent me there. (laughs) 
Vibrations are happening with her Brian's a very deep guy, you know, so he wanted to move beyond songs about summer and, and surfing. Just saying something like, God only knows what I'd be without you, in a rock and roll song, and then create this wonderful music that enables a listener 50 years later to put it on and to feel what, what they were feeling. That's great art. The way he layered and added different vocal parts created that wonderful celestial resonance overdub over overdub over overdub until on God Only Knows he ended up with seven tracks of vocal overdubs. And that's how come you hear this heavenly choir. Here's Paul McCartney. We loved the Beach Boys. And it, it was a bit of a competition across the pond. And when they did Pet Sounds, I played it to everyone. I said, oh, listen, listen to what they're doing here, you know. So we did Sergeant Pepper. Here's Ringo Starr. What happened to us was that while we were touring, we were regressing as musicians because the noise of the audience was louder than the band. I'm watching the feet, I'm watching their asses, I'm watching the bobbing heads. Oh, it's that part. To stay in some sort of time. Beatles producer George Martin. The Beatles achieved a quantum leap when they stopped touring. That gave us an opportunity which we hadn't had before. We no longer were under pressure to complete a song within a day or two days. We could spend as much time as we like on it. The boundaries were being moved so far forward from the early mono days. Now we were asking for things like a symphony orchestra for a day in the life. You know, lunatics are taking over the asylum. Like many of John's songs, A Day in the Life began quite simply, based on the odd newspaper cutting. Paul had written a scrap of a song. Woke up, fell out of bed, you know the one. But when we laid down the track, Paul came up with the idea of a giant crescendo, a kind of immense musical orgasm.
Don't listen to the man next to you, I said to the orchestra. Make your own way up this sliding passage. And if you're playing the same note as your companion, you're playing the wrong one. Well, the orchestra hooted with laughter. All their lives they'd tried to play as one man, and it only took a few minutes for the Beatles to change all that. We were taking so long making Sergeant Pepper. I remember in one of the musical papers, they said, oh, the Beatles have dried up. And we were like, <coughs> no, we haven't. Here's Roger Waters from Pink Floyd. We were on the road driving to a gig in an old Zephyr 4 when Sergeant Pepper was played for the first time on the radio. And I remember we pulled off into a lay-by and sat there and listened to the whole thing from start to finish. And I remember we just looked at each other and went, hey, that's just... Suddenly, here was an album that was like a theatrical construction but it was also rooted in songs that were about all our hopes and fears. And so, in, in that sense, that album opened Pandora's box for everybody. I'm Greg Hingler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a story. Great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And my goodness, what we learned here, as always, in Our American Stories is that intersection of competition, free markets, and intellectual property rights. And my goodness, without all three of those things we are learning here, we wouldn't have the rich cultural and artistic tradition we have here in this great country. The story of the multi-track recording revolution, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now we bring you a story about Black Button Distillery in Rochester, New York, and what they're doing to help their community in the midst of the coronavirus epidemic here in this country. Here's Robbie with the story. Black Button Distillery was just about to go national, as Bobby Romano, their national sales manager, explains. Uh, so we self-distribute inside of New York State. We were really at the precipice of starting to get out. We were already in Massachusetts and New Jersey, but I had to get us prepared and ready to go for Texas and Colorado, and then right after that, Florida and California, and then after that, Maryland and Michigan, and I was actually in Dallas. COVID. Coronavirus. COVID-19. COVID-19. I was supposed to have the, uh, the general sales meeting to kind of do the launch, uh, with the distributor on Friday. While we were at lunch, I got a phone call telling me and the brand administrator that the, everything's canceled. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, we thought of you first because you flew in all the way from New York. <laughs> um, sorry. <laughs> and 
that that was supposed to be my next you know four or five weeks ahead of me you know I basically my trip got cut short and you know we were kind of like wondering what the heck was going on <laughs> so um, so we went from legitimately like getting ready uh, to get to the like the really heartbreaking part of a marathon uh, and really ramping up and moving uh, and then it was just like everything was cut out from underneath us it's what we had spent months and you know and in Jason's case years building up to but thankfully founder Jason Barrett was able to prepare for what was to come I mean I think I may have been more aware of it than most. I say that only because I'm a little bit of a news junkie. And then being an Eagle Scout who is always very prepared, but also very try to be very rational. You know, on the on the early side of this, we started to make subtle changes that were important. We put off um, by a couple weeks some of our key deliveries. We had a little bit of time to to start thinking through it. And one of the reasons that's important is because on the production side, all of our work goes through a three-week cycle because the machine, I mean, the, the fermenters are alive. They have yeast in them that have to be tended. They have to have the right pH. They have to have the right temperatures. And not doing that for a day pretty much ruins three weeks worth of work. We were starting to get nervous that we might get um, told to stay away. And that's why when the governor called for businesses to voluntarily close, we decided not to wait any longer than that and immediately started to prepare the plant for shutdown because even, you know, you know if I make a decision today, I, I still usually need four to 10 days to safely de-escalate my production. Or you just, or I guess the worst case is you just pump the fermenters out into the spent grain tank and you're just out all of that money. Stephanie Barrett, along with being Jason's wife, is the HR director at Black Button and certainly had her hands full amidst everything happening. So I'm getting multiple emails each day about government updates. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, it's, it's a full-time job just to read all of these articles. <laughs> This is, this is insane. Yeah, it was, it was just a down week. We had no idea what was going on. We, you know, little to no information as to what we could do. Um, and uh, just trying to figure it out. Uh, and, then, uh, and then Jason started sending these emails and started giving, uh, all of a sudden I started getting these calls. And he'd be like, hey, Bobby, what do you think if we do this? <laughs> and... Um, I am not a stranger to that. No, Jason kind of is, is known for, uh, at least to me, known for uh, throwing out these crazy ideas. And so I kind of was like, okay, okay, Jason, we can look at that. You know, like, yeah, what do you need me to do? You know, uh, and that's, uh, and I feel like that's the thing that the entire company, um, you know, everybody kind of said, you know, what can we do? And according to Kerry Ryby, veteran advertiser and Black Button's marketing director, this turn to the unusual saved their business. I, I don't think we had a choice in doing something different. If we didn't do this, I don't think our company would survive. I think it goes back to, you know, a lot of small companies, if they don't change tact, if they don't change direction, 
when you have something like this, you're, you're not going to survive. Um, and I, you know, Jason has an amazing survival instinct. He has amazing vision and forethought of the what ifs uh, that could happen in this world. So on Sunday the 15th, it will be a day that lives in infamy at this point. <laughs> I remember Jason being on the phone from like mid-morning, 11 a.m. Everything was operating pretty normally with, you know, a few restrictions, like the sales reps wouldn't be going to accounts. They would just be telephoning it all in to four hours later closing the plant and three hours from then, he's like, yep, we're making hand sanitizer. <laughs> like, what just happened? <laughs> you know, you spend 12 hours on the phone. I have whiplash. I don't know how to track what just happened today. The FDA came out with uh, their temporary guidance on the production of ethanol-based hand sanitizer which was Monday or Tuesday of the week where we were in the process of shutting down. I, I honestly don't remember whether I looked it up or whether somebody sent it to me, but once I read this 11-page document, it was clear to me that we were uniquely qualified to meet this need in that we already have the equipment, we already have um, staff that's trained to handle ethanol, and we, we literally had tank, you know, we we had tanks of ethanol in our storage rooms that were being prepared for making gin this summer. So even if other supply chains took several weeks to ramp up, I mean, we, we conceptualized this and delivered the first order in three days. And that was only possible because we had many of the supplies already on hand. And then we ramped up to full production about a week after that. So, you know, at first, the discussions were just about, hey, you know, we're ramping down some of the day-to-day -day production, but we're going to fill the time with maintenance work, uh, so you know, there's no changes. And then once we thought we were closing, we were telling them, hey, you know, we've got a normal schedule this week, but there's no work after Friday, and we don't know for how long. And you know, we were getting them information on unemployment benefits, and then by but before that ever actually happened, the production guys were back at work on the hand sanitizer. They're now working overtime. And actually just yesterday, we announced to the rest of our staff that we're calling all of our full-timers and a good portion of our part-timers back um, to be meeting this demand. We have four bottling lines running right now, two shifts a day, which is just not something we've ever conceived of prior to this. So luckily there are a lot of similarities. So for instance, for packaging. The very first three days we packaged in our normal glass bottles. So our bottling line did not require any changes. But it became clear that the hospitals didn't want it in glass for fear of it slipping out of somebody's hand and breaking. The bottle we chose is 24 ounce plastic bottle whereas our normal glass is a 25 ounce which meant that the, the changes to the machinery were minimal. We usually only have two bottling lines in the building. We have a, a big one that runs 1,000 bottles an hour and a little one that runs 200 bottles an hour. 
And since we couldn't convert the big one, the stuff we're dealing with is just too aggressive on the rubber. Um, it would blow, it would ruin the seals and possibly cause a fire. Uh, we have to be using the manual ones. And so then it was starting to call around, you know, to the other distillers that we know and beg, borrow, trade, even buy other pieces of equipment that they either might not be using a lot or are will were willing to part with. The water for all of this has to be sterile. We have a, a big reverse osmosis water plant, but it's only scaled to make a thousand bottles a day, not 10,000. And so literally we had to, we are now running a shuttle service between us and Genesee Brewing Company where we're getting sterile water from them as one of our components. So the ability to, you know, connect with others and put together this supply chain, you know, it, it's all, a lot of it's based on personal relationships that, again, that we've built over seven years. Um, I'm, I'm going to owe a lot of people some pretty big drinks and or like barrels of bourbon when this is all said and done, because I think I called in just about every favor I've accumulated over the last seven years to do this. Yeah, everybody's been very happy to help and we've had a great outpouring of support from the community, you know, other businesses offering to help, trucking companies that are, you know, willing to move freight for us for free. Um, you know, we, we've, there's been a great outpouring of support because I do think people in Western New York want to step up and help their community. The effort Jason has put forth to help both his employees and the community hasn't gone unnoticed, especially to Stephanie, Bobby, and Carrie, who are in regular communication with him. Ever since that Sunday morning, like he's, he's pretty much been on the phone since, trying to make this happen, trying to make sure we have all the supplies we need, trying to figure out what's best for the employees, how we can still pay them and make sure they feel secure and safe. So it's, it's very much been a whirlwind. It is not lost on us at all that every single order that we take in, every single you know, person we, we get to take a pallet to help somebody out, yeah, is it helping them out? Yeah, sure it is, but it's also keeping our entire production team employed. You know, I think the hardest day for anybody who runs a business is when they have to lay people off because they can't control something. It was not an easy day for Jason. I mean, we were talking to him and a normally upbeat person was not sounding very upbeat in our conversations that we were having with him. And I think once he had the idea in his head of what we could do, it started giving us a lot more energy to do what we were doing because not only were we keeping our community safe, but we were also keeping a business safe. And, and ultimately that is the health of the community too, in some respects. You know, it was really hard to tell these guys that I've worked side by side with some of them for five years that I didn't have work for them next week. And several of them told me that, you know, that they did not have personal reserves to fall back on. That, you know, if, if they don't work, they'll miss rent and they won't eat. And knowing that unemployment might help them limp along, but you know, it, it's gonna have real personal consequences to them. And many of them, again, are working overtime at this point where hopefully they are able to put something aside. You know, these guys are family and I'll move heaven and earth to get them the hours so that I can pay them and keep them working. 
a couple of his employees all at the same time <laughs> sent him an email saying, we don't want to come to work with the current situation. There aren't really protective measures. We feel like we're being exposed. And it, it feels like you don't care what happens to us. And I know that really hit home. That, that really hurt. And for the first week that we were producing the hand sanitizer, I was monitoring the email account where all the requests were coming in. So I know Jason is seeing this huge need in the community and he doesn't want to sacrifice his people for the community, but at the same time, he doesn't want to fail the community essentially. So he's, he's seeing this need. He is advocating for his people, but his people don't necessarily see that because it's all happening behind the scenes because he's not physically at the plant. <laughs> it's, it's exhausting. <laughs> it's training. I know Jason called one of our marketing people at like 10 o'clock last night because of a website thing. <laughs> We're all kind of workaholics. <laughs> But we, we all know that behaving in a way that will benefit the company, we will also benefit. It will trickle back down to us, even if that just means keeping our jobs through this time, because <laughs> that's, that's kind of big. Uh, and so Jason's like, well, uh, we need somebody to figure out the, the incoming emails. If you email that now, it's coming to me. I called it an infinite inbox. You would answer uh, eight to 10, and then all of a sudden you'd look up and there were eight to 10 more uh, uh, new messages that just came in. So, um, you know, we just kind of worked through it and, and we, we really tried to, uh, as a team together, make sure that we got an answer to everybody. You definitely see the best and worst of humanity during times of crisis. So you see all the panic buyers and the people who are just licking deodorant in the store. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but then you see the people who are really stepping up. You know, they're helping their neighbors. You know, teachers are now being acknowledged for everything that they do and stay-at-home parents are now being acknowledged for everything they do because athletes and celebrities are not actively working at the moment. So we're starting to pay attention to the everyday heroes, which I think is amazing. The biggest connection throughout all the emails is that 98 or 99% of them start out with, thank you for what you're doing. We, this is amazing that you guys were able to change and pivot so quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the second thing that comes is, uh, I know the hospitals and first responders come first. You know, th there's just been a lot of good coming in, um, a lot of thankfulness, a lot of um, understanding. Uh, my neighbor, actually, uh, a neighbor of mine, two houses down, both of them are doctors, actually one at each of the major hospitals here. And um, I got a text from them and said, you know, you know, thank you, Black Button, for what you guys are doing. And it was just, it's just nice to, to see, you know, I, I don't think we need to be overly applauded for what we're doing. You know, like we're, we're trying to survive in a lot of ways. 
um, but it's really great to see that people are thankful. I was talking to some other CEOs this morning. Some of them were asking about my life personally. You know, my wife is, is due in August. Um, we're expecting our, a baby girl in August. And so yesterday we got to go and hear the heartbeat. And many of the CEOs I was talking to this morning pointed out how that was very refreshing for them, which I thought was kind of funny. I was like, guys, it's my daughter, not, you know, you weren't there. But their point being that, that life is going on and, you know, and people are, you know, getting married and having babies and raising their kids. And, you know, and, and as crazy as all of this is, we will get to a new normal. I don't know that the world will ever be like it was before this exactly, but as a society, we will adapt and we will go on and we will find new ways to celebrate those special moments, even if it's now doing it all over Zoom and Skype, etc. And you've just been listening to Jason Barrett, the founder of Black Button Distillery, and his whole team, which includes his wife. And my goodness, so many small businesses or family businesses extend that into the community, and it's a bunch more families. And my goodness, necessity is the mother of invention, and how quickly this team turned on a dime, not only to do good for the outside world, but to do good for their own people. Keep them working. Keep the business alive. Keeping the business safe which cuts to the health of a community, too, we heard from Kerry. And it's so true. These small businesses are the lifeblood of towns. They pay for the firemen. They pay for the teachers. And without them, oh, my goodness. A great coronavirus story. We need more of them, folks. And that's what we do here on Our American Stories every day. Tell the story of the good and decent things happening all around us in our great country. Black Button Distillery's story. A story about Rochester, New York, here on Our American Stories. stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to ouramericannetwork.org that's ouramericannetwork.org they're some of our favorites and today we have a more personal story we have the unique privilege of talking to individuals about their lives and the things that affected them great and small katie kuntz will be sharing with us the story of her family Here's Katie. I'm a preacher's daughter. My daddy was the pastor of a really small church in a really small town. I have five siblings, uh, one younger, four older, and I was a late life child. My parents were in their 40s when I was born, and there's my oldest brother was 18 when I was born. Um, so there's kind of a big gap. All of them were married by the time I was seven. And my first nephew was born when I was four. But my little sister uh, was at home, and she still is. She has a severe genetic disorder. She and I have a very special relationship and always have just because she is so needy. It definitely felt a little bit like an only child at times just because I was the only one at home other than my little sister who was unique, and she was just always you know, a little bit 
a little bit different. So it, it did feel kind of isolating at times. And then especially after Daddy died, I felt very alone in that just because it was basically just me and my mom, even though my little sister was always there. She was not there mentally and emotionally for us, or we didn't really need to be there emotionally for her because she didn't really comprehend what was going on. So when I was 13, Daddy was diagnosed with stage 4 liver cancer. His initial diagnosis was that he would have uh, six months or more if he had chemo, and so he began chemo immediately but he died less than three months after his diagnosis. I had had one of my first sleepovers at a friend's house. We had stayed up literally all night. I think we went to bed at 6 a.m. And the next day, my sister Anna was supposed to come pick me up, but uh, Daddy showed up in his pickup truck. As I was walking out, I saw... Uh, this was right before Christmas, and I saw my Christmas present in the back. And he winked at me and said, don't tell your mama that you saw it. And we got in the truck and started driving home. And I was so tired and so wrapped up in everything that had happened the night before and how much fun I had had that I didn't even really connect the pieces until months, years, maybe later that daddy was really off on that ride home. The radio was always on playing classical music when daddy was driving and daddy would always whistle and he didn't whistle a single time on the way home. And it, it, like, as a side note, I thought that, why is daddy not whistling? Is something wrong? Am I in trouble? <laughs> was actually what I thought. And then we got home and he went and told mama and then they told me that he had just gotten his diagnosis from the doctor. It was just unthinkable. Like, I had no comprehension because Daddy was very healthy and very strong. He was never sick. He got, like, one cold a year. And he never smoked. He would never drunk alcohol. He was the picture of perfect health. And then to be told, like, he's dying of liver cancer, I had no comprehension of what that was going to be like and what that meant and you know we were very optimistic and and my parents have great faith in God and so they prayed for daddy to be healed and there was a big part of me I think that really believed that God would heal him so even when he was you know very actively dying and you could see that he was dying. I didn't see that because I wasn't a grown-up. I was only 13. And I didn't realize. I just thought that he was getting worse before he was going to get better. So it, it caught me off guard when I remember one night. This was He was in a hospital bed in our room most of the time at that point. And... I overheard my siblings talking about funeral details. I got so angry and I lashed out at them and I was like, what are you like what are you talking about? Daddy he he's still getting treatments. Like he's gonna be okay maybe. And um 
to their credit, I don't think they realized that I still thought he was going to get better because, you know, they were very honest with me at that point and said, like, you know, daddy's daddy's dying. He's he's very, very close to death. And that was a Wednesday night. We were on our way home from church, my sister and I. And when we got home, uh, I ran into daddy's bedroom and... I really regret this because I think it pained him a lot. But I went and I said, Daddy, you you can't you can't die. You can't you can't leave us. I, I can't do this without you. And if I could go back and um and change anything, I would take away that night because I think that hurt him a lot he obviously didn't want to leave me and he was he was so weak he could barely talk at that point I don't even remember what he said to me I remember that he said something you know kind if I if I had that to do over I would do that differently but I mean I was 13 and he was my daddy his faith was very strong he he never questioned God. All the rest of us did, but Daddy never did. He always said that he was ready to die. That that was a beautiful thing to witness. And I I was not a believer at that point. I did not know Jesus. And watching him die well um, was actually one of the things that God used to bring me to Himself later because. I could tell that Daddy had a different kind of faith than I did. Physically, he got very, very weak. The chemo was was tough. You know, he couldn't eat much, and he lost so much weight. I remember sitting out on the in the backyard with him on a really, really spring-like day that we had. The wind was just blowing really hard. It was just beautiful, and Daddy was lying there on his little chase chair, and he kept running his hands through his hair, and it kept falling out, and the wind kept blowing it across the yard. He made some comment about a lot of lucky birds having a good nest that spring because they would find his hair. Um, and I, I, I went back after he went inside and I collected some of his hair and I still have it in a bag at my, at my mom's house. I haven't, I haven't looked at it in a lot of years. That's one of those, there aren't many vivid memories of that. Um, those three months that he was sick, a lot of it just kind of flows all together in my mind. And I think I've shut some of it out Sometimes I, I think, like, why do I not have more memories of conversations with him? But the truth is, he wasn't able to talk very much. The cancer, very it grew very quickly, and it was just very soon in his lungs and his throat, and so he could whisper, but that was about it. And he was in a lot of pain, but reading out loud was a huge thing in our family. My parents, we didn't have a TV, uh, we had a DVD player when I was little, but we didn't really watch TV or movies. And my parents read out loud every evening 
as a family to us. Any any book that you can think of. So I would read out loud to Daddy, but I I read out loud to him for hours, and I know my siblings did too. And I remember like saying, "My throat hurts, Daddy. Like I I I want to stop, and I can't read anymore." And I you know wish that I could go back and read all night to him, but I didn't. (laughs) That morning, he called my sister Laura to him and said, I'm ready to make my final bed. And we didn't really, Laura was like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, I I don't know what you mean. You want to go lie down in the bed? Is that it? And they walked him into his bedroom and he lay down and quite quickly if my memory is accurate which I think time is one of the hardest things for me to remember I'm not sure whether it's just the passage of time or whether it's how young I was but like sometimes I think things were shorter or longer it seemed very quickly that he slipped into an unconscious state my cousin who's a hospice nurse came and you know she said it could be it could be days it could be weeks you know who who knows how long this is going to take for him to actually die but i really believe that he that morning when he said that i think that he gave up i think that he stopped fighting i think he was ready to go and he died that night um around well, 1 a.m. the next morning, technically. That afternoon after he went to bed, you know, we called my brothers who were out of town, and they came. Maybe one of them was already there. I'm not sure. And that evening, we all, all of us siblings and my mother, were around his bed the whole night. Um, we sang hymns. And um, I held his hand. Daddy's hands were always one of my favorite parts of him because they were they were really strong and very tanned and rough. He did a lot of work with his hands, so his hands were calloused. And his hands were the only thing about his body that didn't change while he was sick. Um for some reason, they stayed daddies. And so that night, I remember just cradling his hand in mine and just trying to look at it instead of at his face, which was sunken and tired and ravaged by pain. My sister recently told me some things about that night that I would have known because I was there, but I definitely had forgotten um, that he was in a lot of pain, that he kept rousing and um, struggling a little bit. I don't really remember that. I remember that he had an accident at some point during that evening and that they made me leave the room so that they could get him cleaned up, which I'm of course, was the right thing for them to do. Once again, I was 13, but I didn't understand why they were asking me to leave. And I 
was really upset because I could hear him in there and them struggling to get him up and and get him cleaned. And uh, we all were there when he actually died. There was no, you know, melodramatic moment. I had kind of envisioned something a little bit more climactic. Maybe him opening his eyes and saying goodbye or something like that. And there was none of that. He just, he just stopped breathing. I didn't cry at that point. We all felt relief because he had been in so much pain. And I think because, I think because he was ready to die and felt peace about dying, you know, we weren't scared for him. And so I remember thinking, I can't believe I'm sitting here praying for my dad to die. But I was because he was so miserable that night. And then after he died, the coroner was called and came and walked into the room. And I don't, I don't know what I thought that he was going to do to daddy. But I remember saying, I don't want to be in here for this. I can't, I can't watch this. And, and running out of the room and my sister's saying, he's not going to do anything. He's just looking at daddy. They took him away. And we, since we chose to have a closed casket at his funeral, because he looked so sick and different, that was his wish I think it's definitely my mom's wish to not have it open. And so I actually didn't see him again. I never saw him at the funeral home. I never saw him with all the makeup and, you know, cold and corpse-like. That is something I'm so thankful for. Not that we should be afraid of, of death or how people look when they're dead, but I think it's hard enough for me that I have... And my last memories of him are of him so changed. And I'm really, really thankful that I remember him in his bedroom, just lying there with my mama right beside him. That, that's my last memory of, of daddy's body. I'm thankful for that. You know, I obviously missed daddy tremendously and grieved him tremendously. But I think that the hardest thing about the year after he died was not missing him. It was living with my mama's grief because they were childhood sweethearts. They got married when she was 17 and he was 19. They had six kids together. They had a great marriage. My mama's heart was shattered. She never dated again, never remarried, even though she was just 50 when he died which seemed old to me at the time, but now I realize was quite young. But her grief was very explosive that first year, and I think that I was mature enough, I guess, that she didn't feel a big need to hide her grief from me. I remember her lying on the floor many, many nights, screaming and sobbing and begging God to give Daddy back, I remember not crying in front of her because if I cried, she would cry longer. 
if I held it together and talked her through some of it and just was there for her, she stopped crying sooner. For me, it, it, it did scare me that, that my mom, to see my mom like this, because I mean, I was really young. I felt really old. I felt really mature. Um, but the older I get now, the more vividly I remember, I realize how young 13 is. It's a child. I would have bristled at the idea of being called a child, but I was. That first year was really, really hard, and I just didn't cry in front of her. And I think that some of my family thought that I was kind of cold about daddy's death because I didn't cry. I overheard a conversation that one of my sisters had with a friend. I was taking a nap on the couch. She said, Katie just just does not really seem bothered by this. I think that she's handling it really well. And I wasn't. I missed Daddy a lot. He was a very present father. He was a big part of our lives. I would cry at night after my mama went to sleep. We shared a bed. She had never slept alone. She slept with her her mom before she got married. And then when she got married, she slept with Daddy, and they were married 30-something years, I think. And so she had never slept alone. So I slept with her after he died until I went to college. So I would wait until she fell asleep. Sometimes I would get up. Sometimes I would just lie there, cry all the tears. It has only been recently that I actually cry about daddy in front, in front of people. When, when daddy first began chemo, a family member told me that I shouldn't cry about it in front of my parents, um, that it would make it harder on them to see me sad about daddy being sick. I should go into the woods and cry there by myself, that I should never let mama see me upset uh, because it would upset her. I was, you know, I was a somewhat melodramatic child And so I think that this person, I don't think they ever thought that I would take it as literally as I did, but I did take it quite literally. Looking back, you know, I do think that that was very unhelpful for me and for processing my grief Um, and anger. I mean, I was angry, but I didn't really feel like I could share that with anyone. You know, I acted out in some ways. I was a very young teenager. Um, in some ways behaviorally just acted poorly and now I think oh that was (laughs) you were going through a really traumatic event and there was so much change in your life yeah you were acting out Um, but at the time it was treated as me being bad and difficult mama's grief was a burden to me I don't think that that was her fault necessarily I don't know what she could have done differently. I I wouldn't, I guess, have wanted her to hide it from me. She certainly didn't. I think that I did feel responsible for her emotions and her grief. I definitely felt affected by them. And so 
I'm not sure how much of it was just selfishness on my part that I just wanted her to be okay so that I could be okay. I was worried about her and I wanted her to be happy and she would tell me I'm never gonna be happy again. It was hard for me to hear. I wanted her to be happy again. I wanted us to be happy. I wanted our family to be happy. As, as an adult with children, I do sometimes look back and think like, wow, she did, she definitely did treat me like I was a lot older than I was, which in a, in a way, I guess, was good for me. I did grow up, I, I did mature and change a lot in that year. Even now looking back, I know that I did grow up a lot that year. And I guess everybody doesn't have a point that they can look back and just so clearly identify such a huge amount of growth. And so in a way I you know I I'm grateful for that and I think it has had a huge part in shaping me to be who I am now. I don't I don't know what I would be like if I hadn't lost daddy at 13 and I hadn't watched mama grieve daddy. I don't even know that I would recognize the Katie who didn't lose her daddy. It was actually maybe easier ultimately for me to lose daddy so young because a child's grief is big and that was a major splintering of my life. But also children adapt and heal quickly, more quickly than adults. And I did adapt quickly. And I look at my siblings who were so much older and who had daddy as their you know, in their adult lives. And I think that they grieve him daily in a way that I don't. Because sometimes I I think like I'm such a different person now. I'm I'm grown up. I was I was little. Daddy never knew me as an adult. And I think like, would daddy even recognize me? Would he would he even know, you know, who I am, what I love, what I you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't know my husband. He doesn't know my children. And my siblings, you know, had him in high school and college and wedding days. And two had him, you know, for the arrival of their children. And he missed so many of my big moments. The anniversary of his death year before last marked... Um, me living as long without him as I lived with him. So it, it feels kind of odd in a way that he is such a big part of my life still because he is. I think about him almost every day, healing from a, a grief like that and a change like that. I, it's a very complicated thing, and I don't know when I healed. I don't know. I don't know if you ever heal from sorrow like that. I would say within two years, it wasn't as raw. You know, I, I could I could genuinely be happy and I could, I, you know, I, I lived a pretty normal teenage life. I had lots of friends and I was very occupied with schoolwork and my violin and it, it definitely gets easier. People said that to me at the funeral. It gets easier. And at the time I thought like, I don't think it ever will. It did. 
It did. Of course it did. You can't live with a gaping wound forever. You know, it, it has, it does scab over. It has to heal. You know, there are times when the grief seems really, really fresh to me. My wedding day was, was really hard. I felt, I felt like the sorrow was pretty new that day. Not having daddy walk me down the aisle, not having him know at all the man that I was saying yes to spending the rest of my life to, that was, that hurt and that was painful. And I thought about him a lot that day and the grief felt really, really fresh. My husband and I lost our first baby when I was about six weeks pregnant. I actually felt some relief at the time because I thought, I don't know how heaven works. I don't know how, I don't know how any of it works, but maybe, you know, maybe my baby has found daddy and is with him. And whether or not that actually is the way that it is, it definitely gave me a lot of comfort. I think people sometimes think that grief is the same for everyone. And I think that there's a lot of misunderstandings about how different grief is for children and trauma is for children and how hugely it impacts not just your emotional well-being, but literally your brain is affected by grief and trauma, especially as a child. And I, I didn't know that you know, when I was 13. And so it, it just kind of felt like I was not handling it as well as my older siblings. And I think that there were expectations that I would handle it as well as the adults in my life. When I feel sad now, when I remember daddy or remember his death, I'm too good at burying that and, and not letting it I think I've only recently begun to realize how much that first year of me trying to hide my grief from mama affected the way that I grieve about daddy because my first reaction is to not acknowledge it, even to myself, and to not cry. I do know that once I get started crying over daddy, it's hard to stop. I work hard not to even with just me. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's the healthiest way to process grief. Something that is really sweet to me and really helpful to me is sharing with Tyler, my husband, about daddy. I love telling him about him. I think that that's been one of, one of the most healing things for me is talking about daddy to Tyler. You know, for someone who has lost a loved one or had that kind of sorrow as a child everyone's experience is different I would say if if my child if I was talking to my child and they were going through something similar I would want to reassure them that they could still be a child and that it's okay to lash out it's okay to be angry it's okay to be really sad it's okay to show all of that and talk about all of that. And it's okay to cry. I think it's healthy to put your emotions out there and that you shouldn't 
I don't think that anyone should have to carry that weight of sorrow and grief and guilt by themselves. For someone who just wants to know what to say to someone who's hurting or who's suffered a loss, I would say to be kind. And that sounds kind of open-ended because it kind of is. Show them that you love them and that you care about them. One of the biggest things is acknowledge it later as well as when it first happens. We had people who wrote us a year after daddy died and said, hey, I know that this is, I know that this is the date of his death and I'm still thinking about you. We've had people throughout the years come and talk to us about how much daddy changed their lives. That is one of my very favorite things. Just for someone to acknowledge this, you know, this person was an amazing person. And I'm like, yeah, I know. But to hear someone else say it, that's helpful. And that's, that's meaningful. So if you can, talk about the person who's gone. I think that almost everyone I've talked to who's lost someone that they loved, they want to talk about them. And they like being asked about them. It may be hard in a way, but it's much harder, at least in my experience, for people to forget than it is for people to uh, remember. I recently asked my adult sister, tell me, tell me if, like, what were the bad things about daddy? <laughs> I know that grief has a way of deifying people sometimes. And I was like, what, what was negative about daddy? And she was like, well, you know, he would, he would get mad at inanimate objects sometimes. And he had road rage some. And I was like, that's it? And she was like, that's it. I was like, yeah, that's what I remember. So, I mean, he really just was amazing. He would drive up every day from work, and I would run out, and I would say, Dear King Father, and he would say, Dear Little Princess, because we read um, the book The Little Princess. And he would, he would take me to town on an errand, and I would say, Daddy, what do I look like? And he would say, I think you look like a pack of candy and a Coke. And we would stop at the gas station and he would get whatever he said I looked like. I loved spending time with him. He was a wonderful preacher. And I think one of the unique blessings of having a dad who was a preacher is that I can listen to his voice whenever I want to, which is really amazing and a privilege. And sometimes I just put in one of his sermons just to hear his voice again. That is a really sweet thing because... He definitely had a pulpit voice and he had all these mannerisms when he would preach and afterwards that I can just pull to mind so clearly. And throughout the years, so many people have come and told us things that daddy did for them that none of us had any idea of at the time. The people who, if there was anybody who had issues with him when he was alive, their, their biggest fault that they would point out was that he was too quick to believe the best in people and that he tried to believe the best for too long, um, which I think is an excellent <laughs> worst trait to have. Um, he was an eternal optimist, cheerful and happy. I have only good memories of my daddy. I literally cannot think 
of a bad memory of him. I can't remember a time when I saw him angry at me or my mom or my siblings ever. And that's that's kind of incredible. He had six kids and one of his kids had a severe genetic disorder and a lot of issues. Two of my older siblings had problems in their lives and daddy dealt with that with them, alongside them, and just never treated them differently because of it, never talked about them badly. He was a blessing, and he, he lived to be a blessing. I mean, he, was, he chose to be a preacher in a small country church that didn't make much money his whole life because that's he had a heart for God, and he had a heart for God's people. He was always kind. And that's not just speaking well of the dead. It's it's kind of the refrain of our whole family and of everyone who knew Daddy. You've been listening to Katie Kuntz. And my goodness, half her life with her daddy, half without. But my goodness, always a part of her. Her saddest day, probably the wedding day. It was really hard for her. The grief was fresh, not having Daddy walk her down the aisle or knowing the man she was saying yes to. Boy, all those people coming and reminding her of who her daddy was. He had a heart for God and God's people. And he was a very present father. He was too quick to believe the best in people, an excellent worst trait. And my goodness, every father hopes for a daughter in words like these. Katie Kuntz's story, her daddy Mike's story, here on Our American Stories.